Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is David Kamlos. David is CEO and co-founder of Syntegrity, where he's an advisor to organizations on fast problem solving and mobilization to implement solutions. He's worked with companies such as 3M, LPL Financial, and Penn Medicine. David's here to talk about cracking complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast, which he co-authored with David Benjamin, another guest on My Quest for the Best. David has written articles in Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and is a contributing writer for Forbes. He also shares his ideas on leading podcasts like ours. When he's not speaking at conferences or working with business leaders, he can be found enjoying time with his wife and two sons outside Toronto. Welcome, David. Thank you, Bill. Great to be here. It's great to have you. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? My paternal grandmother, I think, was the biggest inspiration to me. She was the most positive person I've ever known, highly insightful, can do, and, you know, really was the embodiment of life, you know, is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond. And can you think of an example of just growing up, maybe even before college, when her example or her influence helped you make a decision about a path that you would take or a decision you'd make? Yeah, my grandmother was taking care of my grandfather, who was not very mobile, and somehow made the time to travel. She loved to travel and would go to great lengths to make sure that she was a great caregiver and partner to my grandfather, but also someone who really relished the world and discovery and learning, and she would make time to travel. And so that really led me to want to seize the same travel bug and just make sure that I spent time in, in places I'm not familiar with and go for it. There's always time. And she showed me that. Well, there is a lot of pursuing terrain that we're not familiar with in exploring, writing about, and advising organizations and leaders on cracking complexity. <laughs> Indeed. What initially drew your interest into becoming an expert on this topic? I encountered, luckily, scientists who had spent their lives studying systems, organizations, joint ventures, governments, countries, and what makes a system tick, what makes it falter, what makes it thrive, what makes it viable. And towards the end of their careers, they had invented some intellectual property methodologies and so forth on how to help those who are planning tomorrow and beyond in an organization or in a joint venture or in a government merge their thinking and solve big problems by working with those who are operating the day-to-day. -day. And that really caught my imagination. I saw that as a big gap and I uh, partnered up with them. And were they already consulting or was that something you brought to it where rather than just doing an academic study of an organization facing these challenges, now you're bringing it into the commercial realm? Yeah, they had really nailed the products that we use and that we've built more products on. 
but what they failed to do was really commercialize in, in any scalable way. So they were doing some pilot projects around the world, experimenting and fine tuning. Uh, when I got involved, we were able to start commercializing and, and bringing this to the world on a broader scale. And is that how you uh, formed Syntegrity? Yes. Was it known as Integrity back then? Uh, no, no, it wasn't. I started uh, the company, founded it as Integrity, uh, joined up with a couple of folks, bought the rights to the intellectual property, worked with the scientists to become self-sufficient, um, and then they continued off with research and you know, scientific endeavors while we commercialized product and brought it to the world. And tell me a little bit about Syntegrity today. What are the markets that it serves? What's the kind of big breakdown of the staff? And what is it that you find most enjoyable about the areas of responsibility you have in leading the company? Syntegrity works with organizations and with leaders when they are at a Brody moment. A Brody moment? What's that? A Brody moment is named after Captain Brody in the movie Jaws when Captain Brody for the first time encounters the shark and backs into the cabin in shock and says, you're going to need a bigger boat. We've been immersed in organizations, Brody moments, when basically the leaders we work with across industries, industrials, healthcare, life sciences, financial services, semiconductors, software, hardware, you name it, government, NGOs, private equity firms, the way the environment is today, the, the world is ripe with Brody moments where leaders realize that current course and speed is not going to cut it on their initiative or their imperative, whether it's digitizing or transforming or growing faster or merging better or delivering a winning customer experience. They realize the trajectory they're on isn't going to get them to the outcomes they want. And so for the last 20 years, we've studied what's going on at a Brody moment, what are the dynamics and what has to be done at Brody moments to help a leader and his or her or their team shift trajectory rapidly from current course and speed to the course and speed they need to be on. Can you give an example of a company that's shifted that course because simply continuing faster wouldn't get you to the place that they desired to get to, they'd only get to the wrong place faster? Yeah, absolutely. For example, we worked with one very large financial services organization that was having a hard time wrapping its head around the impact of big data and the utility of big data and analytics in delivering a much better customer experience and being just much more differentiated and doing a much better job at what they're trying to do. And their chief digital officer was unable to, at the time, convince his colleagues in the various lines of business that they have to invest aggressively and meaningfully against big data. Without their buy-in, their big data strategy was going nowhere. They weren't reaping the benefits. They weren't keeping up. So their current course and speed was not going to get them there. We were able to get them to shift course and speed to the one they needed to be on by getting them their big data strategy in a very unique and novel way in just three days. I can give you another example on a smaller scale. We worked with a uh, small sure. insurance brokerage. It was probably at the time around $10 million in, in premium in PNC insurance, and they wanted to grow aggressively and really be differentiated. They were able to grow fivefold in three years by involving some of the non-usual suspects who they would have brought together to solve for that, not just people from inside their brokerage, but also people from the insurance companies that provide insurance, potential customers, and other external experts. The methodology that you and your company bring to bear, David, 
is unique because it's not just lateral thinking. It's not just being able to solve large problems, which might just be complicated problems, with a lot of moving pieces. Before we get into that, can you define the three levels that you illustrate so clearly in the book between simple problems, complicated problems, and complex problems? Absolutely. And uh, Dave Snowden and his Kinevin framework describe this beautifully. There's simple challenges, there's complicated challenges, and there's complex challenges. Every leader in a large organization, small, mid-sized organization, encounters them in their personal lives and in their business lives. Simple challenges, basically, you encounter them all the time and solve them on your own just by looking at cause and effect, observing the facts. And if there's a lot of traffic in, in one lane and there's another lane that's flowing, you shift into the other lane. Very simple. When you're dealing with a complicated challenge, that's a challenge that is very tricky for the novice, for someone who's never dealt with the challenge before. Like if your car breaks down, that's a complicated challenge. If you're putting in a new accounting system, that's a complicated challenge in that these are difficult for someone who's never fixed them or done them before, but these are solved problems. They've been solved many, many times before. And the right approach to take when you're dealing with a complicated challenge is to just turn to the expert, take your car to the mechanic, bring in that small consulting firm that implements accounting packages 24-7, 365, and have them do for you what they've done for others. Complex challenges are in a league of their own. They're multidimensional. They have not been solved many, many times under the same exact circumstances. You might be an organization that's trying to grow faster. You might be an organization that's trying to deliver a better customer experience or merge or take cost out. These are all multidimensional challenges that need to be solved fresh because the circumstances are unique and where it's not enough to just solve them, but you have to actually galvanize your team around the solution. You have to mobilize people, get their buy-in and their alignment if you are to see sustained execution. Those are the differences. It's something I think that everyone listening can relate to by thinking of those different levels. And what's often the case is that people will get so bogged down in complicated problems that they won't get to the real trajectory defining complex problems to even look at them. Is that something that you've found is that people will come to these issues and say, you know, we really need to, oh wait, you know what, you have a great quote in the book about this, where you say, good questions help you solve complicated problems and they help you clarify complex problems. Did I get that right? Yes, absolutely. I think you're bang on. Uh, I've, some of my mentors have, over the years as I've built businesses told me, you know, it's, it's important to spend time working in the business and on the business. And I find over the years that so few organizations, small or large, get enough time to do justice to working on the business, the trajectory shifting challenges. They get mired in the complicated and don't spend enough time on the complex. It's not that they don't spend any time on the complex, but it's using traditional methods with so much change going on these days and so many new things coming at us. It's very difficult to make sense of the complex and break through on something important like your growth strategy at a pace that's reasonable. Current course and speed, business as usual, you can get there over a year. Sometimes you don't have a year. So we're taught sometimes, you know, don't try to boil the ocean when you're dealing with a big multidimensional challenge. We're actually mentored to do the wrong thing, which is to try and take it on piecemeal, when in fact we have to find ways to take it on in a whole. But yeah, when you're dealing with a complicated challenge, a good question 
articulated, it will solve the problem. And when you're dealing with a complex challenge, it'll frame the problem. So a complex challenge might be, you know, what must we do now and over the next three years to become number one in our industry? Or it might be what must we do over the next nine months to double our growth rate? Those are complex challenges phrased in the form of a question, which really serves as the invitation to you and your team to get into solving. That's a great distinction. Now, I think a moment ago, everyone listening was nodding their heads. I think that was the sound I heard of as you're describing how we don't often have time to get into the complex problems. How do you make time for your business and how do you advise others who are leading businesses to make the time for it, to look for, actually seek out the complex problems that could be solved, need to be solved, would benefit from someone taking leadership in solving them and approach them? So, you know, Dr. Heal Thyself, we use the complexity formula, which is found in Cracking Complexity, on ourselves um, at Syntegrity, regularity to deal with growth issues or to seize opportunities faster, to partner better with channel partners. We bring all the right players into the right place. Really what we advocate for when you're dealing with a complex challenge is you have to think through the lens of requisite variety. Only variety can absorb variety. That means that's really important when you're dealing with a high variety challenge, lots of moving parts. I want to grow faster. I want to merge better. You have to bring to bear a diversity of talent that's going to be able to deal with all those moving parts. That means going beyond cross-functional. It means involving your agencies of record, your partners, your vendors, maybe a few external subject matter experts, some people lower down in, in the business, people who touch the customer and so forth. We do that regularly and it allows you to free up capacity to solve. Because if you can go from spending six months to spending three weeks or three days on solving for something that is complex and macro on your business, you're basically building capacity in your, in your business. And this applies to small businesses and large businesses that are trying to get after more imperatives faster. We're in regular conversation with organizations and with leaders in those organizations, knowing that when they're at a Brody moment, they're likely going to adhere to the complexity formula because there's heightened complexity. They'll have more appetite for bringing a larger group of people together for two, three days and putting people through their paces in a very rigorous, intensive way. And we know that when they're not at a Brody moment, when a leader's not at a point where they feel current course and speed is not going to be adequate, things may be complex, but that's what people expect. They expect to get after their objectives, that they're not going to want to bring a large group of people together and go through the complexity formula because it's just not proportionate to what's going on. So we are always in conversation with leaders and leaders should be in conversation with themselves. Listeners should be saying to themselves, when I'm faced with something important, I need to ask myself, am I faced with a complicated challenge? Because then I should bring in consultants and experts to just do for me what they've done for others. If I'm faced with a complex challenge where I need to change trajectory, I need to go faster on something that has a human dimension to it, a lot of moving parts, needs to be solved fresh. Well, then bringing in the experts and the facilitators and the consultants isn't going to work as well as getting them to join you and a high-powered group of people from inside the organization in robust dialogue and what we call forced collisions, where you actually go through a collisional process where you connect everyone to everyone and you get them into deep dialogue with one another. When you bring the right group of people together, Bill, net-net, and you've chosen the right people from the perspective of talent and knowledge and experience and expertise and place in the business and place in the ecosystem, 
and you actually get them talking to one another, everyone with everyone, you can break through on big challenges in just a few days that would normally take months. And again, that goes back to freeing up capacity to take on more as a leader. David, the way you describe it, I think for someone who's never been through the complexity formula or an example of a, a conference where everyone got to talk to everyone, that's a tricky thing to facilitate. And I think that I'd love to hear an example, if you could walk us through one that maybe you took one of your clients through in order to get all these conversations flowing and getting the people in the room where you didn't, especially where you didn't necessarily have authority over them, where you can say, clear your calendar for three days, this is really important. But maybe you were bringing in an outside advertising agency or an association leader in order to give perspective on what he or she's seen in the field. Can you take us through a quick example to give us an idea of how that requisite variety really plays a key role in having the next step, which are the the collisions and the conversations focused around those issues? Absolutely. We recently worked with a life sciences company that had been planning to launch a new way in which to fight cancer. So not just a new product that fights cancer, but a new way in which to fight cancer that actually teaches your immune system to fight the cancer itself. And this is new to the life sciences company. This is new to patients. This is new to medical professionals. And so they needed to figure out how to make the most of this opportunity for patients, for their families, for the healthcare system. And they'd been planning for two plus years on the launch. They'd been in conversation with potential well, with experts and so on and so forth. But their leader felt that just before the launch, they hadn't necessarily done all the novel thinking that's required to properly launch the product. And so we were brought in fairly late. They used the complexity formula to bring in, as you suggest, Bill, people from the inside who were really deeply immersed in this upcoming product launch, the science behind it, the patients that could benefit from it the insurance companies that would pay for it and so forth. But they also brought together their agencies of record, management consultants, experts in the field in which they were launching into, so oncologists and other medical professionals. And it was this ecosystem of people talking about, you know, answering a question on what do we have to do to make sure that all patients who can benefit can actually have access to this novel therapy that we're bringing to to the market. By getting all the right people in the same room, that was half the battle. Because when they were planning internally, they were planning with themselves. When they opened it up to other thinkers and other talent, that diversity of individuals were able to surface so many other things in dialogue. Now, when you bring a high variety group of people together, first of all, half the battle, as I said, is getting that high variety group of people together in one place. And the question is really the invitation. It's got to speak to people. It's got to be relevant to them. Okay. But once they're together, then you have to ask yourself, now, how do I extract the most out of these people? How do I give them a good experience? And how do I extract the best thinking from this group? And at the same time, align them around that thinking so they they execute accordingly, they change behavior accordingly. That requires a very unique collisional process. I'll describe it very briefly, if you like, Bill. I would find that fascinating. So, you know, and more can be found in the book, but basically, as a leader, you can frame the challenge in the form of a question. What must we do now and over the next six months to ensure X, Y, Z? That serves as the invitation. Now, you bring a high-powered group, a diversity of talent together, and it's important to distribute people on a variety of different topics that are getting after the question. 
And it's important to iterate and give people behavioral roles for conversation. I'll, I'll explain both. Don't just have one meeting on each of the topics you've identified. Have several rounds of meetings on each of the topics. What you'll find is that one round of meetings builds on the other. And you can get much, much more fine-tuned and creative and innovative and practical and pragmatic outcomes if you iterate. And don't just throw people into conversation. Give them ways in which to interact, meaning assign some of them as members of a topic, assign others as critics of a topic. And if there are a lot of people, assign some of them as observers. Members own the topic on which they are members, and they have to advance that topic as far as possible in service of answering the big question that's been posed to them. Critics are there to listen very carefully. They know they're not going to have much of a speaking role, but that they will be called in from time to time to critique what the members are talking about. And that role is a very useful and powerful role. You can really shape the outcome. You can really help the members have an incredible conversation. It also psychologically makes the critics listen in ways they wouldn't be listening normally if there were no member and critic role. The most frustrating role and one of the more beneficial roles is the observer role where observers, when they're in a meeting with members and critics, observers have no speaking rights, so they can just listen. Now, when you have multiple meetings happening to get after answers to the question, you can shift people's roles from one meeting to the next, member, critic, observer, so that it's fair. And what you'll find is people are much more incisive. They're listening better. They're taking in more. They're appreciating things. They're getting to a shared understanding. Especially if they've had the role of observer previously, they're more empathetic when they're in other roles. That's right. That's exactly right. And I can riff on that if you're interested, too. You know, one thing I'm curious about is, is what about the role of the note taker, which has to be done very carefully so that they're accurate and objective and don't introduce any sort of biases by the note taker him or herself. Exactly. So it, it is not, it's not trivial. You really have to appoint a note taker for each of the meetings and give instructions and potentially some coaching up front to that note taker that he, she, or they are not there to listen to the things that are interesting to them to filter ideas out that they don't agree with. They are there to capture everything in a succinct way that does justice and is representative of what the members and critics have put forth. And David, how do you get them to actually have those collision conversations where they're not espousing a particular point of view, but they're really open to being challenged and people feel empowered to challenge them because we're just looking to get to the best idea I remember in the book, you had a story of a CEO who would always be able to introduce his idea and say, well, what we ought to do is introduce this to a new market, which we haven't introduced it before. Mm -hmm. And the small group of people gathered around the conference table would start to nod and say, why, yes, that's a great idea. And here's how we'd go about implementing it. And the CEO was waiting. And just to illustrate to perhaps you or another member of your team, he would say, oh, unless that would cause a problem. And here would be the problem, X, Y, and Z. And he would wait. And within 15, 20 seconds, the people around the table would nod and start to agree and find out reasons and justifications for what he just said. And you really can't make headway in a situation like that. So what do you engineer, construct, devise, and tell people to do in order to create those conditions that allow for confronting and interrogating the ideas without 
obeying or feeling um, like you're walking on eggshells? Yeah, so that's a great question. There's a lot to say on that. But let's before I say anything on what you do, let's look at what is done today. Normally, yeah. when you bring a group of people together, you bring them together for an hour for a meeting. You don't necessarily involve some of the non-usual suspects. And you don't give them a way in which to interact with one another, like a member, critic, observer role. You let them have at it. You bring the CEO in, you bring other folks in, and you say, we're going to talk about segmentation or we're going to talk about growing faster or what have you. Let's get at it. We have an hour. So-and-so has a hard stop, et cetera. That doesn't work on working on the business type challenges. That works on linear incremental improvements, if that. But when you bring a high-powered group of people together and give them a day and a half or two days, and you iterate on the same subject several times, and you put people in the member critic observer role, the normal voices that would tend to want to dominate may find themselves in their first meeting listening for the first 15 minutes because they're a critic and not a member. Or they may find themselves listening for the first hour because they're an observer and not a member or a critic. It's changing the behavior patterns of people that enable them to get past some of their blind spots in the way that they interact with one another, listen to people who they don't normally listen to, not just wait to be heard, but actually listen to what other people are saying and take some time to ponder before responding. It's these kinds of changes and ways in which we intervene that allow for a group to go from having, you know, in contrast to just one meeting on a topic to having three meetings on the same topic with much more discipline and incisive issues-focused dialogue that's disarmed as opposed to constrained where hierarchy is dominating, where the loudest voices are dominating. That is an unusual set of circumstances for many people to meet in of organizations of any size. And I really get the stakes that are presented where we need to solve this very complex problem. We have a unique opportunity to do it. And we'd like to come together for these two to three days to bring this together. What is it that you find that most people shy away from in letting this process go through to its fullest extent to get the maximum value? I think when we started doing this in the early days and learned from this was people would allow people to send proxies instead of themselves. They'd say, well, I'm the CEO and I can't make it for those two days, or I'm the head of marketing, or I'm the head of sales or the head of finance or what have you. I'm going to send so-and-so instead of me. But when you're dealing with an important challenge where it's not just about the brain power in the room, because you can actually get access to brain power by bringing different people. But when it's also about buy-in, and alignment, you do need to have the, the people in the room whose buy-in and alignment you need in order to clear the way for work to start happening. So I think the biggest challenge for people to wrap their heads around, at least when we used to do this 15, 16 years ago, is, oh, you're going to need two days of my time, or you're going to need two days of the CEO's time. When you're dealing with a very large challenge, a very important challenge, small business or large, like growing faster or improving margin or serving patients better or changing something very meaningful. Two days is actually very little time. Two months, six months, 12 months is a lot more time. But we are conditioned to expect two months, six months, 12 month life cycles, when in fact, all we need is a few days if we get the right people in the room. And so what we, what we counsel people even today is, 
you get the right people in the room, you make sure that that question's the right question for their interest level, that the stakes are high, and the rest flows. That makes a lot of sense. And I hope that everyone listening understands the importance of being there in the room and having the people in the room who are those who could make the decisions and effectively bring about that alignment and the buy-in because it's genuine and you have the authority to do it. And I bet you that there are some times when you need to substitute. Someone just isn't available due to travel arrangements or other commitments. You would accept not a proxy, but a substitute. What's your strategy and, and how do you cancel organizations in order to bring in others who aren't the, maybe the first pick, but who will bring us a necessary viewpoint or set of resources that are, are critical to solving the problem? Yep. Great question. So we will meet ahead of time because you have to be really deliberate around what requisite variety is, who's the right group of people. You have to handpick those people. So as you say, when there's a substitute, what you want to do with the substitute, the individual themselves, is give them the context for why they're being invited, what their role is, what kind of contribution is being looked for. And at the same time, we meet with the person who was invited but couldn't make it and have them understand what the stakes are for this challenge why this group is being pulled together, what the desired outcomes are, and the kinds of support that is going to be expected. And we do that with the sponsor inside the organization, the leader who's bringing this group together, as well as the person who's being substituted so that they understand that they were given a really good opportunity to participate. We understand they can't participate. Here is the context for what's being done. Here's what they're missing. And here's kind of the expectations for what's going to be coming out of this, how they'll be briefed on what emerged, and that we're going to need their support moving forward because we are bringing together 30, 40 people, 20 people who are going to collectively think this through. The onus will be on this individual to overturn it if he, she, or they disagree and to prove why it should be overturned. Otherwise, they need to get in line and help, help execute. So here's an interesting idea that I was bringing, thinking of as, as we were starting the call. And I was thinking of different levels of the problems. And we were talking about simple problems, complicated problems, and complex problems. And I was thinking to myself, voting is like that. The idea and understanding one's responsibility to vote is a simple problem. Setting up voting across different counties and different states, that's complicated. As we've all seen recently, it can get screwed up. <laughs> Yet it, it's complicated and it's solvable. It has been solved in different domains. Here's the, the complex problem that I would pose. And let's just go back and forth with this just a little bit. The complex question I would ask is, what do we do to increase the percentage of people voting in the United States so that we have the majority of eligible people participating in elections who could participate in elections? Is that solving and framing a, a complex problem in your mind? Absolutely. What must we do now and over the next year so that we have X percent greater voter turnout than previous years? However you want to frame the question. And then it would be interesting, you know, what is requisite variety in this case, right? Because it's not one organization that's trying to solve a problem. It's a country that's trying to solve a problem. People may not view it the same way. You know, people may not even want it solved to begin with. And some people may dramatically want it solved, desperately want it solved. So who are you going to tap into to make sure that you covered all bases of requisite variety, that you didn't just bring a like-minded group of people together? You brought naysayers and cynics into the conversation, underrepresented populations and people. 
it'd be very fascinating what kind of experts you would bring. Maybe you would borrow some from other countries that have answered the very same question years ago. That's the kind of thinking you would do about requisite variety. And then, of course, convening power. I mean, I don't even know how you would bring something like that together, right? Who would be... There's no authority. <laughs> right. Who would be the institute to bring that together? And that, you know, I've heard people describe the notion of wicked problems, which indeed are complex problems with an exponent to the power of, right? Wicked problems are seemingly intractable problems. The one that you've identified around elections and, and how to get more, you know, greater voter turnout is solvable, theoretically is solvable. But there'd be a lot of deep thinking that has to go into how are we actually going to get after that challenge? Who's going to bring those people together? Who's going to attend? I really appreciate perspective on that because it follows that these are solvable problems. And what has to happen is to figure out what maybe we scope it differently. Maybe we look at you know smaller subsets. But problems that are well formulated are on their way toward being deterministic as, as solvable. Yes. Yeah, that's half the battle is to form or to prop, like basically articulate the problem and identify who could possibly in combination get after it. David, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? I am. Excellent. So you are a very busy person with the different consulting engagements that you work on, the variety of different problems that you're asked to participate in solving, writing books, giving presentations. When you think about setting up for your ideal workday, what are three components of your morning routine that help you get set in the right mindset and body set in order to execute on an ideal day? I typically exercise. I run early in the morning, most mornings. And the one that really jumps to mind is I use my calendar as my to-do list. I don't keep a to-do list. I use my calendar to represent my to-do list. And I'm able to, I've been doing this for years and only recently read that this is best practice. But for years, I've basically used my calendar to manage my life, including things that are not due on any certain day, but things that I need to work on perhaps. And I can, at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, look at what is in my calendar for the upcoming day and I can move things accordingly. And it just gives me a good sense of what I'm getting done, what I'm not getting done, what needs to be done, what's urgent, et cetera, as opposed to a list that uh, I don't relate to as well. And what would you say is one of the biggest obstacles to adopting effective decision-making process in your personal life, say for a family vacation? Not listening to my spouse enough, not being clued into what she really wants to do. So we've just identified that the top-rated listener for this podcast, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, David, if you could put a slogan about your work on a billboard that every key business stakeholder decision maker had to drive by each morning for a month, what would it say? That's a great question. The wise see knowledge and action as one. And that's from the Bhagavad Gita. That's wonderful. And as you think back over your career of helping organizations and governments and institutions of all kinds crack complexity, what's one of the most memorable examples of the moment that an insight was gleaned that you've observed? We've had thousands of them. One of the most memorable ones is one of the first ones, just because it sticks out, is, is in the beginning, we worked with um, a healthcare organization that 
is really involved in managing blood supply for a country. And they were working on a very big strategy. And I was struck by how at the end of uh, bringing 48 people together from around the world, experts, people with lived experience with hemophilia and other blood disorders, people from inside the blood system, health, you know, healthcare professionals, government officials, and so forth. People were saying, you know, I came in thinking that this country needs a dedicated, you know, whatever it is, and I'm leaving knowing that we do not need a dedicated whatever it is. And that was really overturning years of policy and dogma. That was just a complete 180 turn. Yeah, it's remarkable to have those glimpses that no one expected going into it occur. Mm-hmm. And David, where do you see the application of the complexity formula most needed in society today, where you'd like to get the word out so that people start embracing it, adopting it, and applying it? Well, I think a lot of large organizations are really standardizing on the complexity formula. I mean, we work across the Fortune 500 and it's deeply embedded in their organizations. I think governments could really use the complexity formula to make headway on very big complex challenges like, you know, how do you reform healthcare? How do you reform education? What should we do with defense? How do we educate the next generation or two or three? How do we deal with the opioid epidemic much faster and and more comprehensively? These are big, big challenges for any people, for any nation, for any government. And the problem is the the circumstances are just coming faster and more furiously with all the different accelerating forces in the world. And so to be able to get after these challenges and bring the right variety of experts and policymakers together with people with lived experience and you know futurists to get a down payment on solutioning for these big challenges, we would just have a much better world to live in. And just leaders who are living into their mandate for getting these things addressed much faster. David, one of the things that I was struck by in the methodology and examples that I read in Cracking Complexity is that it's not just a strategy or an insight, but it becomes something that doesn't go into a a three-ring binder and sit on a shelf or into a PowerPoint deck that just gets forgotten about in three months. They actually get put into action and implemented. What would you say is one of the best insights that you could share for people who could take these insights out of a process like the complexity formula and implement it so that it becomes an ongoing, living, effective set of actions rather than just insights that have a short half-life? Well, we don't have a lot of experience with insights that have a short half-life, largely because of how how this is set up. So it's very easy to have insights And it's very easy to have insights that are short-lived when you're in a small group of people, oftentimes like-minded individuals, a homogenous group of people who speak the same language and are getting together for an hour or two or three or even a day. They will have some insights. They may have some breakthroughs, but that pales in comparison to when you bring a very large group of people together who don't speak the same language, who spend some time breathing the same air for a few days, focused on something really important, and are given the latitude and, and the space and time and the, and the way in which to make mistakes along the way and retrench. When they come to deep insights, having come to a shared understanding, the insights are really, really big. 
the insights are based in a tremendous amount of context and they're just, it's impossible to have them short live. What we find instead is when a large group comes up with what to do, they implement it. And when a small group comes up with what to do, the next step is change management to convince that large group that this is the right course of action. Well, David Knowles, you've shared so many great ideas with us on my quest for the best today. I want to thank you so much. First of all, the fact that your grandmother was such a positive, insightful, and can-do person who cared enough to actually make sure that she still got to travel even while taking care of your grandfather really showed a balancing of priorities and a nimbleness with being able to execute that I think comes through with your examples, your thinking, and your generosity. I think that people take away their own Captain Brody moments that they've had or will be having or are currently having and think of this interview and the complexity formula as they do. I love the examples that you shared, including the insurance company that wanted to grow and needed to figure things out faster than what was currently happening. We talked about uh, the life sciences company that needed to fight cancer in a new way. It wasn't just improving a medicine, it was teaching the body to fight cancer. And to do that, they needed to bring in a lot of different viewpoints so that it wasn't just launching a product, it was helping educate people on how to introduce it and gain insights into how that was going to work. You taught us and shared ideas about making the requisite variety a key part of planning and executing on using the complexity formula because when you have that large group of people you get viewpoints that you weren't expecting and by making people go into those different roles of speakers critics and observers it forces people to think reflect listen and interact with each other in new ways over the course of iterative exercises returning to topics over and over again you helped emphasize the idea of not accepting proxies, but if there needs to be a substitute, there are ways to introduce the substitute and inform the initially invited person on what was expected and how they'll be debriefed. So David, for these reasons and so many more, I just wanna thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best today. Bill, it's been a pleasure and I love that playback. That was amazing, I really appreciate it. David, before we say goodbye, tell us where we can find out more about you and your work online. You can visit crackingcomplexity.com, and you can also look at syntegritygroup.com. Well, we will link to those websites, as well as many of the other places that we referenced and mentioned, some of the thought leaders, some of the processes that we discussed on this episode. David Kamlos, co-author of Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. Thank you again so much for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Okay, thank you for that. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. 
We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.